Hey. <laughs> My name is Daryl, and I serve as a deacon here at Church of the Incarnation. I just want to welcome you all to the fourth Sunday of Advent, uh, where it is going to be in the mid-60s today. Uh, and I'm just going to say this. Uh, I've been praying all day, return, O Lord, and make it right. Uh, return us to calendar-appropriate weather. Um, I'm tired of this. Uh, don't punish us any longer with winter coats in the morning and beach clothes in the afternoon. Uh, I can't do it. Uh, anyway, so uh, here we are, right? Right at the beginning of, uh, on the cusp of Christmas Day. And the lectionary at this point invites us to slow down for a moment and to sit with Mary. This is Mary before there was no room at the inn, before there were shepherds and wise men, before there was a silent night. There was Mary, a young Judean girl living in an out-of-the-way place, living an ordinary life. That's where we find her today. And she had no reason other uh, than to expect the way things were was just status quo. This is the way it was going to be because God had not shown himself in 400 years by the time Mary comes along. 20 generations of people were born, lived their lives, and died. And God was not speaking at all, not through the prophets, not to his people. But just because God wasn't speaking doesn't mean he wasn't at work to do something. There's a saying uh, well, it's in a song, but I don't, I'm sure it's a saying before that song uh, that says, grace grows in winter. And I can't think of a better place than this. There was a, there was a winter of 400 years, and now life uh, was beginning to pop up. Um, C.S. Lewis calls these places like the shadow lands. It's the living out your life in the day-to-day, -day, in the gray space. But what our text does today is it challenges to see that God is at work even in the gray spaces, preparing the way. He's setting the stage, and for 400 years, he was laying the groundwork for what was going to come. Roads were being built connecting cities together, and those roads would carry the gospel at some point. The religious elite were developing their rhythms. They were building up to this point where they would have to engage the living God in Jesus. The stage was set, then there was a spark, and a spark over here and some rumblings under the surface. We see this in a lot of our fiction, um, where there's uh, silence and darkness, and then life starts to pop up in little places. So we have, we have something happening here. And the first spark happens six months before our text today. And it happens exactly where you would expect it to happen. It happens in Jerusalem, and it happens at the temple. In that text, right before the text we're on today, we are introduced to two people, Elizabeth and Zechariah. And we're told a few things about them. We're told that they were righteous. They were doing things the right way. They were doing it the way it was supposed to be done. They were honoring God, and they had it all together. We're told that Zechariah was a priest. He served in the temple of God. And Elizabeth was Mary's relative. We're told that she was barren. She was unable to have children. And she prayed and prayed and prayed, and her prayers weren't answered. And we're told uh, also that they were both very old, which is something important in this story. And one day, while Zechariah serving in the temple, he was visited by an angel. And standing by the incense, uh, he was there in the temple, right beside the incense. The angel shows up. That's where they show up, uh, near the incense. It's a good place to be. And the text tells us that Zechariah is very scared. Uh, so the angel tells him, Zechariah, don't be afraid. This is par for the course. Uh, when we read the scriptures, whenever angels pop up, they always say, don't be afraid, because uh, this is very scary, right? An angelic encounter. And the angel tells him, your, your prayers have been heard. All those prayers that you prayed for decades, the Lord heard you. 
and you're going to bear a son. His name's going to be John. He's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. He's going to turn people's hearts back to the Lord. He's going to prepare the way. This is really incredible news. I mean, if you've ever been in a place where you've prayed and prayed and then finally you get what you prayed for, that's, that's incredible. It's amazing. So here he is in the temple. He's talking to God. He prayed for a miracle, and here it was. So how does Zechariah respond? With doubt. I love these stories because I feel like it's the human thing, right? This is how we would respond to things. You've been praying, hoping for something from ages, and then when you finally get it, you're like, eh. You know, a little skeptical as to what this is. So he tells him, how will I know this will happen? For I'm an old man, and my wife is getting along in years. Which is another way to say, like, the physics aren't working, right, for me having a baby. Um, now, you think an angelic visitation would be enough, right? Like, an angel would come to you. If, you, if an angel came to you and told you something important was going to happen, I think I would, I would believe it just because that's a terrifying moment to be in. But not in this situation. From the context of the story and the angel's response, we can infer that his question to the angel was a, uh, at its root an unbelief. And Gabriel wasn't amused uh, by his response. Uh, Gabriel was really excited about this message, and his response kind of set him off. And I love the way that Gabriel responds here. He responds like a boss. First thing he says is, I am Gabriel, which is just <laughs> not, a good, not a good response when the Lord starts to, to talk to you through the angel. And he says, I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you about the good news. But now, since you don't believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, God's still going to do his work. You're going to become mute, and you're unable to speak until the day that these things occur. And the chapter ends with Zechariah using sign language uh, and Elizabeth being overjoyed. And I, I love this icon. The church always has such a great imagination for these things. You can see Zechariah on the left side. He's kind of not wanting to pay attention there to the angel. He doesn't believe him. And then next, he's mute, standing with his wife, and they're hugging, and they're in love. And there's a wonderful thing because a child is coming, and it was a gift. So I love that image. And uh, it says that she exclaims once she hears this, this is the Lord, this is what the Lord has done for me in this time when he looked favorably on me and he took away the disgrace I've endured among the people. And then the curtain closes on that scene. Now, if Gabriel had his hands full with this first announcement to them, it wasn't necessarily without precedent. Throughout the Torah and the, the Hebrew scriptures, we see God showing up and bringing life to barren wounds. So women who can't have children that are past the childbearing age, they cry out to God, and he comes, and he brings life into their womb. But what was coming next would be something unprecedented. It wasn't just bringing hope into a hopeless situation. It was doing something that had never been done before. At no time in history was there a woman who conceived who had never been with a man or near a man in that way. This was unexpected. And as the curtain opens on our text today... We're six months past the last uh, situation with Elizabeth. She's now six months pregnant with her baby, John. And the stage pulls away from Jerusalem. We move away from the temple and all the important places. And we go about 90 miles north to an out-of-the-way area that Father Chris calls Redneck Israel. It's kind of out there a little bit. And the contrast between these two situations is stark. The angel started in a place that we would expect, right, in the temple, but now we're in an unimportant place with a Judean teenage girl. If you can, go to the next slide for me. Hopefully. It's coming. 
Um, so let's talk about Mary for just a moment as we're stepping into this text. Uh, there it is. I love this image. Uh, so much going on there. Um, now, I don't know if you know this or not, uh, but Mary was, ex- was supposed to be around, they su- uh, suspect 12 to 14 years old in that age. Who here is 12 to 14 years old? Anyone? A couple? Cool. This was around Mary's age when this situation took place, which is pretty incredible um, if you think about what was going on there. Um, I've shared this before, but for the uninitiated, uh, I grew up in the Pentecostal church, and I grew up where there was a big emphasis on the end times and the end of the world, specifically the rapture. Uh, It was a strange time uh, for me in my life. Uh, I was a kid, and I was terrified of the end of the world, uh, which is not a place that you should be. Um, I just knew at any moment I was going to wake up and I was going to find piles of clothes that used to be my parents, and I was going to be sitting around left behind. Um, It's a strange thing. And one fine winter day, I was living in Detroit, Michigan with my family, and I was home alone. It was raining. This this is etched into my brain. Uh, It was raining pretty bad outside. I was playing Nintendo in the kitchen. I had on, I remember, striped socks. I had my feet up on the, uh, the table where the TV was at in our kitchen. And I was playing a game called Who Framed Roger Rabbit. This is how important this is to me. I remember every detail. And then suddenly it happened. There was a loud siren. It started quiet and it built up and it was louder and louder and louder. And that triggers people uh, that have grown up in this environment. So I paused my game and to use the words of Mary, I pondered what sort of sound this might be. And the next thing I knew, I was standing in my front yard in the rain, screaming and yelling, trying to find if anyone was still left. Uh, only to have my neighbor across the street open the door. His name was Chris, and he stuck his head out, and he said, are you okay? And I bowed my head and walked with shame back into my home. Um, And it was a tough situation. And so, fun fact here, even though I was embarrassed in a way that only the truly religious can be embarrassed, uh, I also realized that Chris wasn't a believer anyway, so he would have been left behind anyway. So there was nothing that really made this a better situation until my mom got home. And then I knew that I wasn't left behind. Now, if you've ever looked at me and you've questioned, I wonder what happened to Daryl. Now you know this is what made me what I am today and all of my things. So you're welcome. Now, Mary, luckily, was a different type of teenager. We're told that she was betrothed to Joseph. He was of the house of David. And we've discussed this before, but betrothal was much more than an engagement. It required a divorce to break this off. They were deep in the throes of an Advent season of her own. Uh, between betrothal and between her marriage and consummation. And this is where the angel approaches Mary. And the angel approaches Mary and he says, Rejoice, favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And she's perplexed. And she wonders what type of greeting this would be. And the angel, like anticipating this response, he tells her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you're going to conceive in your womb and you're going to bring forth a son. And you call his name Jesus, and he'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And there's probably so much going on in Mary's head in this moment. Mary wasn't in a well-to-do place, right? She wasn't uh, living in the temple or in Jerusalem. She was in a far-out-of-the-way place with a persecuted people. And just to imagine uh, the angel telling her, you're going to have a king. And the the weight of that weighing on Mary. But the biggest question she has is how? 
How can this be? I'm a virgin. Now, the ancients knew just as well as we do. We may think, well, back then they didn't know. They knew how babies were made, and they knew where babies came from, and Mary knew that there was no way she could be having a baby. So she asked the angel, how can this be? I'm a virgin. Her question isn't rooted in doubt. She's not rooted in disbelief. Rather, it's an honest question of a teenage girl trying to understand the strange situation she was in. And I love Gabriel's response. He's so kind. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. You're not going to do this alone. The Spirit's going to be on you. And God's using, the angel's using Genesis language here. Gabriel's saying, Mary, do you remember Genesis? What happened in Genesis where the Spirit of God brooded over the waters and created something out of nothing? That same Spirit that we read about in Genesis is going to come to you, and he's going to brood over your belly, and inside of you he's going to create life, the indwelling of God in the flesh of men. And as a means of ensuring her that this is going to happen, he tells her about Elizabeth, who was called barren. He tells her, Elizabeth is also going to be with child. Nothing is impossible with God. The angel's confession that nothing is impossible with God finds its deepest meaning in the improbability of these two situations. That a barren elderly woman is going to have a baby and that a young teenage girl from a nowhere town is going to be favored. The way we expect things to go is not the way that things go. And this is good news for Mary, and it's good news for you if you find yourself on the wrong side of life. And in response to all this, Mary says, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Really incredible words. Such a contrast, right, between this and Zechariah's response. Here, Mary exemplifies perfect discipleship, faith, trust, even in the face of risk that she was no doubt going to face. She wasn't old and learned, she wasn't important and popular. She was a lowly, ordinary girl. This flipping of the script is highlighted in Mary's prayer that we sang just a little bit ago called the Magnificat. In response to her interaction in Elizabeth in the next chapter, she says this, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why? Because he looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day, all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has mercy on those that fear him. In every generation, he's shown the strength of his arm, scattering the proud in their conceit. He cast down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he sent away empty. He's come to the help of his servant Israel, and he promised to show mercy, the promise he made to our fathers Abraham and his children forever. Mary saw what was happening to her with Jesus is something utterly subversive. God was going to dethrone the proud, the powerful, the privileged, the wealthy and the well-fed. He was going to raise up the poor and the lowly and the hungry. He was going to be a different type of king, maybe not the king that we wanted, but the king that we really needed. And for somebody like Mary, this upending of the social order brings so much joy because she's no doubt lived and seen injustice in the world. And what the Lord was beginning through her son would be the undoing of the oppressive systems and value structures that had robbed humanity of justice. Things would never be the same. Throughout the ages, God had lived in his temple. That's where he chose to engage his people in a holy space, a limited space to a very specific people. 
But through Mary's yes, God quite literally moved into the womb of his creation. And the church has played with this imagery and seen Mary all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. We see her as Jacob's ladder, creating a ladder between heaven and earth. There's icons that show her as the Ark of the Covenant because she carried the word of God in her belly and Aaron's rod, the priesthood forever. We see her as the golden censer because she carries the aroma of God in her belly. And my favorite one is we see her as the burning bush, which I think is such an awesome, there's an image of her, if you can look it up later, it's really great, but it shows Mary sitting and there's fire and flames all around her and she's holding the word of God in her belly, but she's not consumed by it. Such a beautiful imagery, how the church has always looked backwards at the Old Testament to find images that push us forward into the new. Such a beautiful thing. And then even more important than that is this idea of Mary being the second Eve. That's why I got these tattooed on my hands a long time ago. I have Eve on one hand and Mary on the other, and they get to look at each other all the time. I think it's really cool. Um, don't do it. It's going to ruin your life, and you'll never get a job, kids. Um, but, <laughs> but through Mary, right, through Mary's let it be, the word became flesh. And through the yes that we pray, the Holy Spirit enters our bones and that's such a powerful thought, right? The God who split the sea, who tore down empires, who holds the waters of the earth in his hand, has taken up residence inside of you and me, and he's moved his temple into our hearts. We are now Christ's hands and feet. I love how Bishop N.T. Wright unpacks this. If you could throw the quote up there for me. We are called to be small working models of new creation. This is the story of salvation. We are saved ourselves in order to be signs of salvation to the wider world. Those signs of salvation are partly that in the life of the church, people ought to see, though tragically they don't, signs of reconciliation, of healing, and hope, which people know in their bones that the world desperately needs. In our yes to God, we're called to live in hopeful expectation that God is at work in the world and through us and around us despite our situation, despite our outlook, despite the hand that we've been dealt. We just need to hold on and to trust that he'll act. Our hope, like Mary's, is tempered by the fact that when we look around, that we see that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Broken relationships, poverty, racial inequity, sickness, divorce, addiction, abuse. Things are not right. But these are the type of people that understand the cry of Advent. This in-between space between the now and the not yet. That's what Advent is all about. Father John shared this quote with me a little bit ago from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, he was a pastor, professor, Nazi fighter, and he's got a movie coming out. Well, he doesn't, but somebody's acting like him in a movie that's coming out soon that looks pretty incredible. Uh, it's called Bonhoeffer. It's a very interesting uh, title. Uh, but this is what... If you could turn the next slide forward, this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about Advent. Not everyone can wait, neither the sated or the satisfied. The only ones that can wait are those people that carry restlessness around with them and people who look up with reverence to the greatest in the world. Thus, Advent can only be celebrated by those whose souls give them no peace, who know that, the, that they are poor and incomplete, who sense something of the greatness that's supposed to come, before which they can only bow in humble timidity, waiting until he inclines himself towards us, 
the Holy One himself, God in the manger. God is coming. Lord Jesus Christ is coming. Christmas is coming. Rejoice, O Christendom. What Bonhoeffer's getting at here is that Advent is about waiting and hoping. It's about rejoicing in the good news that God is doing something. But it's also realizing that Advent isn't for everyone. If you've made peace with the way things are, if you're comfortable with the status quo, the way things have always been, if you're unable to recognize your own poverty and your own need, then you're going to miss it. Advent will just pass you right by. This season leading up to Christmas is meant to give us that space to explore these themes within ourselves, to question our motives, to challenge our assumptions. What are those places in our lives that we become too content with less? Where we stop believing, where we've stopped praying, we've just come to accept injustice as just the way it is. This is just who I am. This is how I'm always going to be. Church, we cannot lose hope. Like Zachariah and Elizabeth, we might be praying for ages and ages, old and barren, but God is known to show up in those spaces and do big things. He turns things upside down, quite literally. I believe that the Lord today wants to reshape our priorities, to restore broken relationships, to walk with you through your addictions, to lift up the lowly and the brokenhearted, but we can't lose hope that, he, that he's not going to do that. Advent is a chance and a call for us to learn to believe again, to hope again, to trust the work that was set into motions by Mary's let it be some 2,000 years ago and allow that transform us as it did in the life of this teenage girl a long, long time ago. Jesus is coming, church. Hold on. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen.